0: Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, a podcast where we tell the stories that matter. I'm your host this week, Stephen Perkins. Above all, the two skills that every journalist must have are curiosity and a dedication to capturing their subject. Curiosity comes natural for many in the media industry, but there's often a line with how committed journalists are to pursuing the story. I think the most obvious example of a dedicated journalist are the war zone reporters who literally risk their lives to tell stories from the front lines. And in exchange for a good article or segment, they often receive anxiety or PTSD when returning to the safety of the newsroom. But this week's story is about an extraordinary female journalist who put it all on the line to reveal the inner workings of one of the most mysterious of institutions. Nellie Bly was the pen name of Elizabeth Cochran, who was born in 1864. Her father, Michael Cochran, made a considerable living for his family, but passed away when Nellie was just six, leaving behind no will and thus no fortune. Nellie would go to the Indiana Normal School, where she studied to be a teacher. She wanted to help her now single mother financially, but her schooling was cut short by a lack of tuition funds. Returning to Pittsburgh to live with her mother, Nellie received her first bit of acclaim when she submitted an editorial response under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl in response to an article in the Pittsburgh Dispatch. The article's writer, Erasmus Wilson, published a sexist piece about how women belonged in the home, cooking, cleaning, caring for children, etc. In her rebuttal, Bly shot back saying, quote, here would be a good field for believers in women's rights. Let them forego their lecturing and writing and go to work, more work and less talk. Take some girls that have the ability, procure for them situations, start them on their way, and by so doing, accomplish more, than by years of talking. The paper's editor was impressed by Bly's sharp commentary and hired her as a full-time writer, choosing for her the pseudonym that would follow her for her career. Bly's early work followed working women in factories and sweatshops, leading her to often go undercover as a worker in those facilities. She was reassigned to cover more traditional topics for women at the time, such as fashion, culture, and homemaking. But as you can imagine from such a curious and dedicated reporter, she became increasingly agitated with her assignment. By 1887, Bly made the move from Pittsburgh to New York City and began working for the New York World. Her first major assignment for the paper would end up being the highlight of her investigative journalism career. She was to convince doctors that she was mentally ill in order to gain access into a mental institution for a 10-day study of what goes on inside those facilities. Her editors told her, Quote, "we do not ask you to go there for the purpose of making sensational revelations write up things as you find them good or bad give praise or blame as you think best and the truth all the time" Bly was nervous at first understandably and wondered how she would get released after 10 days "i do not know" her editor replied "but we will get you out of there if we have to tell them who you are and for what purpose you feigned insanity" To prepare for her visit, Bly practiced insanity at home as to best convince doctors. From the moment I entered the insane ward on the island, she wrote, I made no attempt to keep up the assumed role of insanity. I talked and acted just as I do in ordinary life, yet strange to say the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier I was thought to be by all except one physician whose kindness and gentle ways I shall soon not forget. She wrote that in the introduction of her exposé that was published after her visit. During this time, the mentally ill and insane were banished from society, often sent to live in mental institutions in remote locations like the one Bly lived in on what is today Roosevelt Island. Many of these institutions practiced cruel and inhumane therapy that, at the time, was believed to help aid mental challenges. The institutions themselves were usually underfunded and incredibly uncomfortable for patients. In her dispatches, Bly would come to understand this all too well. To gain access to the asylum, Nellie first spent a night in a woman's boarding home paying 30 cents for a room. During her stay, she unleashed the insanity she had been practicing, causing the other women in the home to fear for their lives. She was brought in front of a judge the next day who concluded that she had been drugged and ordered her to receive a psychiatric evaluation. Every single doctor who saw her agreed that she was, indeed, insane. Days later, she was admitted to the asylum. By this time, Nellie's story was gaining attention around the city. Publications and residents alike wondered who this mysterious, insane girl was, During the day, she wrote, the pavilion was visited by a number of people who were curious to see the crazy girl. I kept my head covered on the plea of being cold for fear of some of the reporters would recognize me. During her transport to the asylum, crowds of people surrounded the police wagon and police officers had to pull them away. Upon arriving, Bly asked one of her escorts off the boat, what is this place? To which he replied, Blackwell's Island, an insane place where you'll never get out of. Upon arriving at the institution, Bly was examined, sent to dinner, and given a bath. The food was scarce and consisted of a pinkish liquid the patients called tea, bread, butter, and prunes. Nellie didn't eat that night because of how horrible the food was. And after dinner, Nellie was taken into a cold bathroom and ordered to strip. She originally protested over the request to strip until asylum workers made her. She then protested over the cold water, but was forced into the bath, and scrubbed by one of her fellow patients, who she called crazy. She wrote, For once I did look insane. I caught a glance of the indescribable look on the faces of my companions who had witnessed my fate and knew theirs was surely following. Unable to control myself at the absurd picture I presented, I burst into roars of laughter. That night she would be locked in her cold room with barred windows. She wrote of how impossible it would have been to escape, even in the event of a fire or other emergency. Should the building burn, she wrote, the jailers or nurses would never think of releasing their crazy patients. All would be left to roast to death. She wouldn't sleep that night and frankly did not expect to get much rest for the remaining nine days she was to remain there. The following days and nights would be almost unbearable. Bly would document how patients were forced to sit and wait on metal benches with little to no protection from the cold. Meals never got better, and food was often spoiled. Violent patients were tied together with cable ropes connected to an iron cart in which injured or especially harmful patients would be locked in. During walks, patients were not even allowed to enjoy the grass. Bly wrote of an instance when One woman tried to keep a colored leaf that had fallen on the path, only to have the nurses, quote, throw their little bit of God's comfort away. The asylum itself was dirty and full of creatures, whether it be rats running through the hallways or spiders found inside of loaves of bread. The nurses, who were there for the care of these fragile patients, acted abusively towards them and used harsh language. Bly wrote of one moment when a patient claimed to be 18, only for the nurses to discover her real age of 33. The nurses taunted her until she cried. As she cried, they ordered her silence, which only made her grow louder. They slapped her and knocked her head until finally choking her. Then they dragged her out of the closet, Bly wrote, and I heard her terrified cries hush into smothered ones. After several hours' absence, she returned to the sitting room, and I plainly saw the marks of their fingers on her throat for the entire day. In what is perhaps the most depressing of Bly's observations is the hopelessness that the patients developed. Above a pavilion was a motto that read, While I live, I hope. Bly contended that it should be changed to, He who enters here leaveth hope behind. After several months' confinement, the thoughts of the busy world grow faint and all the poor prisoners can do is sit and ponder over their hopeless fate, she wrote. I have watched patients stand and gaze longingly towards the city. They in all likelihood will never enter again. It means liberty and life. It seems so near, and yet heaven is not further from hell. After 10 days in what she described as a human rat trap, Nellie's editors at the New York World revealed to the asylum staff that she was not insane, but undercover and on assignment. She was released and as happy as she was to be leaving, she described it as a bittersweet goodbye. She wrote, When my release came and I knew that God's sunlight was to be free for me again, there was a certain pain in leaving. For 10 days, I had been one of them. Foolishly enough, it seemed intensely selfish to leave them to their sufferings. Shortly after her return to the city, Nellie was summoned by a grand jury and asked to present her findings. Working with the district attorney, Nellie led members of the jury on a tour of the facility. But Nellie noted differences in this trip to the island, writing that the boat they traveled on this time was cleaner than the boat she originally arrived on. The doctor that examined Nellie on the island admitted to the jury that he had no idea about the conditions of the baths and that the food was less than acceptable because of a lack of funding. It was clear that the asylum workers were expecting the jury's visit, as the facilities were suddenly clean and the patients that Nellie had written about were nowhere to be found. By all accounts, the asylum had its deficiencies but was otherwise in better shape than Bly's writing. Nonetheless, the jury sided with Bly and the court ordered a list of changes, not to mention her report secured an additional $1 million for the asylum. Her life and work displays an immaculate dedication to the profession of journalism and the curiosity that must go along with it. She would go on to famously sail the world and report of distant lands and people. She placed herself in the shoes of her subjects and gave special attention to the facts and details of what she was covering. Her writings about the asylum are a must-read for anyone interested in investigative journalism or life for the mentally ill at a time when, as a society, we were falling behind in their care and treatment. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the story as much as I enjoyed telling it. If you did, please subscribe to this show on whatever app you use for podcasts. You can follow at Outset Network on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can view all of our other podcasts by going to OutsetNetwork.com. Until next week's episode, thanks for listening.